they have a hard time coping. Well, yeah, who wouldn't have such a hard time coping with it? Are there specific counseling clinician things to help? I mean, I have found, you know, just being there or, you know, uh, and that's where we get back to a sense of community and people being close together and that bonding, yeah, our, our religious beliefs, you know, coming around, those are powerful things to help us cope after. How can we use the practices of social psychology and forensic mental health to assess and respond to the changing and troubled society around us? Let's talk all about it with licensed psychologist and author, Dr. Jay Slosar, right here on episode 439 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is all about you. It's about your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the Growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, I always ask, and I'll continue to ask, if you'd like to leave a rating and review on Apple or Google or Amazon or Spotify, that really helps other people find the show. And just share from any app where you happen to be listening. The show notes will be on your app and they'll also be at nursekeith.com in the drop down menu. And if you'd like to support the show in a different way, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. You can pledge as little as $2 a month to support the production and the dissemination of the Nurse Keith show. Well, like I said at the top of the hour, we are here at Dr. Jay Slosar. And Jay, you first crossed my radar because it was brought to my attention that you were writing some really amazing and thought-provoking articles on LinkedIn. And I'm curious, um, what has brought you to the place of writing articles and sharing your thoughts on some of the really deeper issues affecting our society? Like what what's one of the catalyzing things that made you feel like, oh, I've got to share this with the world? Well, I, I guess it it is far... 40 plus years of clinical experience, you know, having seen a lot and done a variety of different things. I've always been a bit eclectic, uh, and paying attention to the, to the broader world. Uh, and, and I had written a book about 10 years ago. Uh, and, um, you know, writing books, an interesting thing. <laughs> uh, it, it was well received by those who read it, but it, there's such a, uh, aspect to being more well known in terms of when you, you know, when you put a book out, you know, uh, and, and at the time I wrote that, it was about narcissism, which was a hot topic and was growing. Uh, and I called it the culture of excess. Uh, I've continued on in that vein and realized uh, my clinical expertise kind of really can be used uh, in a broader way. I like to use the example of micro and macro, you know, like in the last post on LinkedIn about abrupt suicide. Uh, there's a macro thing going on that we should know about. And I'm surprised a lot of people don't. For example, that suicide is increasing. Uh, and the key research of uh, Deaths of Despair by Case and Deaton, uh, which I mentioned to a lot of people, very solid research on the 
deaths of despair from uh, drugs, suicide, and alcohol, and how dramatic that is and increasing. Uh, and so that's like the larger picture. And then my own personal experience in, with suicide, uh, you know, on the nitty gritty of when you have to treat someone, you have to respond to someone. Uh, and, and since that's growing so much, uh, and, and we're so uh, affected by it, and, and the other deaths, I think it's important to have the macro and the micro. And I, I kind of vacillate between when I do the micro, I want an impact on helping someone on a day-to-day -day basis, a nurse who would be dealing with suicidal people coming in, the hidden signs or aspects of it. But then the macro trying to, get, can we get a handle on this? What's wrong, you know, in our society that we have these deaths of despair? And that leads us into larger area of which I think you've noticed I've even posted a piece on capitalism and things. That's right. That's right. And your articles are excellent. I've been sharing them on LinkedIn and uh, I think they get a lot of traction on the platform for good reason. Um, in your one on suicide, the most recent article, you wrote, quote, as a clinical and forensic psychologist, I have always maintained we will never stop all suicides, but our impossible goal should still be to try. It is a human and moral argument to seek zero suicides, even based on the reality that it cannot be attained. And on this show, I've talked quite a bit about the data on physician suicide, which is mm -hmm. approximately one per day in the United States, wow. somewhere around 400 physicians a year. So they're part of these statistics. And then nurses aren't taken aren't there's not a good enough tracking of nurse suicides but we know they're there but you said suicide is on the rise in general throughout our american society do you think the pandemic had a big piece to do with that or do you think it's it's separate from the evolution of the pandemic well, the pandemic certainly didn't help, <laughs> you know, and added to it. But we saw the trend growing before that. Uh, in fact, there was a noticeable trend in the data of middle-aged males, and particularly middle-aged white males. Uh, and when that data arose about, oh, 10, 15 years ago, quite a while ago, it stunned the sociologists because we had never seen a spike in that area before, you know, that age range and that. I mean, what is going on that in middle age, some people reach and just give up or have a helplessness and, and take their own lives? Uh, and, you know, leading again to larger questions, what's wrong? You know, now some of those, of course, get related to drugs, alcohol, et cetera, you know, and those things that they link together. But the trend was happening before. The pandemic certainly didn't help anything, you know, on these. And uh, a lot of kids became very frustrated and anxious and that because you know they were they were playing ball going to school and all of a sudden all these activities stopped it was enough to drive everybody crazy and try to cope you know so it brought out things but the trend was happening before that uh there is a relationship of it of that to our larger socioeconomic aspect and capitals of which uh case and deaton do do talk about in terms of hey what about our social and economic policies the the macro, the broad thing in terms of its impact on our citizenry. Mm -hmm. And it's very disturbing when we know that there are people out there taking their lives who we could reach 
if we knew who they were, if we can identify them, and then if we can intervene. And of course, like you said, zero suicides is not an attainable goal, but it it should be a goal anyway. And that's where we put the goalpost. And then we just see how we can how we can address that particular issue. We have, you know, we have pervasive violence, school shootings, mass shootings in, you know, outside of schools as well. And what you talk about, this sort of uh, what did you call it? A cumulative stress bomb yeah. that is affecting the country on a very deep level and in pervasive ways, kind of across socioeconomic class, across race. So where (laughs) this national despair has many factors that feed it. And what do you think, what's out there that we can proactively address in order to do something, you know, do something effective when it comes to this sort of like national despair and cumulative stress problem. Yeah. I called it psychosocial despair. Uh, and through the question out there to clinicians, you know, are you seeing this, this buildup? And, and there, there is when you put together, not just suicides, but, um, uh, shootings and, and all the other things that you mentioned. Well, that's where then we, the rubber meets the road and we get to where, okay, so What's a pathway? What are some things we can do about it? And then it always kind of becomes the hardest part. It's easy, you know, to talk about these things and what to do. I mean, of course, obvious it comes to mind. And, and, you know, then we're still battling with this is, is guns and gun violence and, you know, having, having sensible gun control that an 18 year old would buy an AK 47 to me is just so ludicrous, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's that aspect also. Uh, but we have to cope with what is happening uh, and, and, and be more attentive, be more community-based. Uh, recently, I saw an article about, you know, reinstituting the 800 helplines, you know, uh, suicide lines. And we used to have more of those back in the, even the 60s and 70s, we seemed to kind of have that. And they, they kind of deteriorated. We're going to try to really bring those back, you know, in terms of, at that moment, when the person feels that way, they can call, <clears throat> hook up with someone who will listen, you know, just listen, you know, uh, and, and respond and direct them to a resource or even, you know, send the uh, authorities out or whatever, you know, if need be, or, or get a loved one on the line to help them and, you know, and, and get them to help before they have that, uh, they commit that act. Because there have been people who were suicidal, tried to hurt themselves, and they talk afterwards and, and they say, thank goodness, you know, someone was there, this happened or, you know, uh, and then they go on and they rebuild their lives, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and they are so grateful that something happened that, that prevented that the completion, you know, of the act. Right. Uh, but it, then there are so many people also, young people who make, uh, uh, you know, partial suicide attempts. There's a word for it. I think they call it pseudo suicide i don't like that word but i mean mm. that you know the cutting and those kind of things which as are always interpreted as, as cries for help yes but the cumulative stress bomb is that all of this is so happening and when it does happen already has happened the number gets larger and the number of victims who lost a loved one now dramatically increases okay and they have to deal with uh, 
you know, when it's an unnatural death, a shooting, a suicide, a child dies, you know, that, that shouldn't happen, right? <laughs> shouldn't happen. But it does, and more of it is happening. Then we have a lot of people, you and I and everyone, who have to cope. And it's mm. hard because when our parents get old and die, and our grandparents, well, you know, we can kind of, it's hard, but we can, we work through the phases of life, you know. Mm-hmm. But the unnatural deaths, uh, that, that's something else. Uh, and so the, the issue has gotten so um, magnified that the APA last year uh, in the um, DSM-5 and the TR version put in a new disorder uh, category, prolonged grief disorder. Okay. Now, when the, they put a new category with a code, which means the insurance will pay for it, this becomes a big, big thing. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> It's all billing. One clinician responded on my post. Oh, here's another category for they just want that to bill it, you know, and mm-hmm. that thing. And this is our fusion of the problematic aspect of some capitalism. But I, I do believe it's a genuine uh, uh, diagnosis to put in. Uh, the criticism was it pathologizes grief, but it had to do with a 12 month period, you know, of when the person just can't get through it. Uh, and uh, other terms for it were briefly complicated bereavement. Mm-hmm. Um, Heard that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And another one was um, uh, stress, stress trauma, uh, mm. suicide type of thing. So, um, but so imagine a parent losing a child. Of course, that's got to be the worst, right? And yes, the shootings and everything. Sure. And and how do you cope? And so it can even be difficult. Uh, to talk to them about it because like I used the word closure in one thing and I saw one woman who'd lost a child. She said, there is no closure. And I, I understand why well, I'm, I'm using the word as in trying to move forward, mm-hmm. you know, cause mm-hmm. what's, what other, I often say, but what other choice is there? You know, you've got to go backwards and take your own life. Yeah. There's, and, there's two choices, right? You yeah. go on and, and, and that on. does happen. There have been Absolutely. Uh, one of the fathers in the Florida shooting, that Florida shooting, a couple years later, he took his own life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, after you just can't accept what has happened. So, and again, as I said, you're never going to stop all suicides, but we've got to try. I, I, you know, I mean that so much and hope to say that to inspire people, including lawmakers or whatever, to put the resources in, you know, absolutely, uh, yeah, uh, to do that. But it's getting so high. And the data does show that in an unnatural death, by that I mean, you know, suicide, homicide, shooting at a school, those kind of things are, I guess, aren't supposed to happen. About 49%, there was one study, have prolonged grief disorder. Hmm. But they have a hard time coping. Well, yeah, who wouldn't have such a hard time coping with it? You know, are there specific counseling clinician things to help? I mean, I have found, you know, just being there or, you know, uh, and that's where we get back to a sense of community and people being close together and that mm-hmm. bonding, our, our religious beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, coming around, those are powerful things to help us cope after. And boy, do we need those resources now more than yeah, ever. Do we, do we, right. Do we ever. And I want to point out to listeners, uh, whether you're a clinician or not a clinician, that the suicide hotline in the United States was shortened from a 888 number 
or 800 number to now you just dial 988 on your phone. So that's something to be aware of and to tell your clients and patients and your family and friends, 988 is the national suicide hotline in here in the United States. So um, that's a really good thing to be aware of. Now, you've mentioned deaths of despair and you wrote an article, the first article of yours that I read was about something that you coined called capitalism delusion disorder, CDD. Yeah. And even though that is somewhat tongue in cheek on a certain level, there is something about that article that really hit me about the ways in which the, I don't want to say the evils of capitalism because that's just too judgmental, but just yeah. the, the reality of capitalist society and the pressures that we all feel as parents, as members of society, that that does, I believe, drive a lot of people into places of despair. And I've been there myself. So tell me a little bit about the origins of CDD, capitalism delusion disorder, and how have people responded to that, you know, you putting that out in the world? (laughs) Very interesting. I got some negative things on it because when you critique capitalism or yeah, you're, you're branded some kind of socialist and you don't like capitalism mm. and there's such a bravado to it. Uh, it's, it's almost like the, a bit of our individual rights and some of the bravado or that thing to the second amendment, you know, it's kind of mm. like that, you know, real strong position. You don't, you don't crash it. It's in. And who can argue that capitalism hasn't produced the greatest things and in, in medical care and everything else. So I always have to give a proviso, look, I capitalism is the best system and we need to keep it. It just needs guardrails, you know. Uh, okay. But the theme of that tongue-in-cheek article uh, was, uh, and I started it in my first book, The Culture of Excess, that there were these forces coming together of tech, the speed of technology and all of that happening and the uh, high expectations and a raging capitalism and, you know, how fast money can go uh, and all these things. Uh, and it was just building, building, building in it. And people are now writing that's really affecting our brains. And it's putting us to a point where we lose self-control. One of the themes of my book there and the subtitle was America lost self-control and how we need to regain that faster, faster, more, more, easy money. You know, you know uh, I point out about how uh, one, one guy quit medical school and went on a reality show. You know, I mean, it's like young people have just these different visions of success. I even said, we need to redefine success, you know, because some of the people were like just putting it purely in terms of image and money and, and everything. So that's where that started. I put the delusion in there now because what has happened in the last five years from what I can see out there is people are delusional, (laughs) you know. Uh, Now, in politics, we can certainly see this. You know, there's still people insisting that, you know, Trump won the last election and those types of things, you know, Uh, and, and, you know, saying things that it's like, are they, uh, they're delusional, it seems, you know, but because they do believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of that. But you the did. other part of delusion in the article I wrote was related to capitalism, where our expectations have become so high and we just expect this money or whatever that we're delusional. And I, I think I mentioned re- reference like the Twitter reference where the, the, the amount of the company was 
don't know, billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Evaluation, yeah. And I'm like, how can any company be worth that much? You it's know, insane. It, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just unrealistic, right? Yeah, we can't even we can't even fathom it. But right. you know, there was this article in the New York Times not that long ago, um, um, back in May of 2023, about how the largest transfer of wealth from one generation to the next is occurring as we speak from basically the baby boomers to um, Gen Xers and most and mostly millennials. Eighty four trillion dollars being passed down from older Americans to the younger now through. 2045 and in the next decade 16 trillion will be transferred so i you know in terms of these delusions of um capitalism and also despair you know these this like despair that people are feeling before we take a break i just wanted to mention how i think the disparities of class and the disparities of wealth in this country, if we just look at the United States, is so excessive that I think that can cause a lot of us to, I mean, it hurt, hits our self-esteem. It can hit many, many buttons, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Uh, another word that I would substitute within there, and I'm, I've been meaning to like look at this issue more, and that because uh, I'm sure there's research on it, is mm-hmm. expectations. Hmm. The expectations created in today's younger person are entirely different, I think, than when you and I are younger. Uh, and I know in, in my article, I kind of take a, a, a sarcastic slap at the term serial entrepreneur, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, because that's what's cool. If you work for the government, you're a bureaucrat, you know, mm-hmm. you're a, you know, and you're there becomes hack. there yeah. becomes this thing with the mon- people with the money and the entrepreneurship that kind of gets the status and elevated. And is a downward looking at at everyone else who has a job, you know. Right. So Elon Musk, you know, is sort of the held up as this paragon of, right. you know, um, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and creating these right. these incredibly highly valued companies or buying them or whatever. And you know, you think about you think about your average nurse working in a hospital, saving lives putting their own life at risk during, let's say, a global pandemic, for instance, right? right? And this nurse might make, you know, maybe they make a decent 90000 a year, Yeah, you know, it's a yeah. decent living. But that person is saving lives, putting their life on the line. Right. And meanwhile, we have all these other folks, entertainers, athletes, et cetera, whose value to the society is so exponentially mushroomed out of control that that nurse might feel a little, might feel a lot of different feelings, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The CEOs and the athletes are are so overpaid. And when I said earlier about guardrails on capitalism, yes, what would be wrong with putting some guardrails there as to the CEO's salary? I've seen some recommendations as to it can't be so many times higher than the lowest paid worker at the company, you know, or the athletes in this, but because that huge thing just causes everyone to strive to that aspect, no matter how they get there sometimes, which is the process, you know, Uh, and it's just, it just leads to out of control behavior and unrealistic uh, expectations. Mm -hmm. Um, So, 
somehow, but you know, again, the speed of that technology and all these things and the money and all that has just gone up, up and up and up and up. Uh, and kind of that's where our young people see it and feel it and get caught up in it. I, I hear that. When we come back from the break, there's so much more to talk about in terms of forensic mental health and about your career. And let's dig deep into a lot of those topics right after the break. So hang in there with us. We'll be back for the second half of episode 439 with licensed psychologist, forensic psychologist, and author, Dr. Jay Slosar. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Jay Slosar. And Jay, prior to the break, we were talking about the culture of excess. That's the title of your book, actually. The subtitle is How America Lost Self-Control and Why We Need to Redefine Success. And we were talking about differences in you know, earning power and quote-unquote value of, let's say, your average nurse making maybe 90000 a year and a CEO or an athlete or an entertainer or someone like Elon Musk making untold millions or billions of dollars. And we've touched on deaths of despair. We've touched on capitalism um, delusion disorder, which I think is a very, actually a very important tongue-in-cheek article. And you as a psychotherapist, and forensic psychologist, you've been involved in a great deal of of um, deep work with many different um, populations. You've done, you've had specialties in juvenile assessment and competency, high conflict as divorce, PTSD, and you even did a um, presentation to the FBI Quantico training facility on perfectionism and its relationship to suicide and law enforcement personnel. And you're also an expert witnessed with juveniles, families, and in criminal law in Orange County. So in the course of your career, how have all these different areas of interest captured you? You know, have there are there like crystallizing moments you can point to, or is it just a, an accumulation of interests and things that have caught your attention throughout the years? I think it's more the accumulation aspect. Mm. And so then after 30 or 40 years, you kind of like make these connections, you know, mm -hmm. and, and apply it. And then when you see what's going on in the larger society, uh, when I wrote the book, which was 10 years ago, and by the way, even before Twitter came out, <laughs> That's um, right. yeah, which, you know, so people have told me to write a follow-up to the book because what I started is so much worse, but I, yeah, I just haven't uh, gone there to do that. But it's an accumulation uh, of things. And then as you get older, you know, I think a lot of us, we want to do something to make an impact on a broader scale uh, than the one-to-one the -one work, you know, uh, and, and use that and put things together. Uh, so I think, uh, I think that that uh, is a cumulative aspect. Hmm. So you've, you've delved into so many areas of our troubled society, let's just say that. And in your work in social psychology, I read that you've thought about and written about 
this notion of how do people change? And you've said that there's this debate, this internal debate within the, I guess, within the profession of whether behavior changes first, attitude changes first. Is this a chicken or the egg situation? Or is this something that you feel like is becoming more clear through research and through people sharing in, in the literature? Yeah, I, you know, truly, I am not a social psychologist. I just have delved in and looked and because the issues are so interesting uh, and interact with social psychology, certainly interacts with forensic psychology, people's attitudes and things. But the, the debate has been there for a long time. There's evidence on both sides uh, that change comes first. And I, uh, you know, there's a great little book called How People Change by Alan Wheelis a San Francisco a psychoanalyst, great writer. Uh, and it just was this little book, but uh, but clinicians kind of were assigned to read it, you know, and in talking about, you know, how do people change, you know, when they come for therapy and counseling, that is what they want. They want to feel better, uh, but then there's a deeper level of change. I have taken the position from my experience that I believe uh, you change the behavior first and then the change occurs, okay? Uh, in a simplistic way, you know, if I want to lose weight, I go, I go exercise, you know, but that's a simple issue of, of things, you know. I often say, you know, like when it comes to something like weight, uh, people want to lose weight, and they always, we know what to do. Mm-hmm. We know what's the best foods to eat and what not to eat. <laughs> we know, we, everybody knows that. But then how do you do it and actually do it, right? It takes discipline, self-control, and consistency in terms of that. And so that's kind of the issue, you know, actually making the change. And when we see someone do that, we have admiration for them. Good for you, you know. Mm -hmm. You have the discipline in that to do that. Easier for some than others. Back to self-control, by the way, what I've written earlier, I think today it's a lot harder because we have lower self-control. We So we overindulge on everything. You know. But why is why is it the culture of excess declining self control? Why is that so? Is it just because of what we see in the wider world around us, and it has an impact on us, and what we want compared to what others have? Right. Well, again, technology coming into it has had a lot to do with it. It has sped things up, uh, increasing wealth. Uh, and, and those combinations of those things have just, you know, a growing narcissism that goes along with it. They've mm-hmm. all intertwined to just keep going up, 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 up to where, again, younger people today are being raised with so much more expectations. But the parents are kind of like that, too, you know. Uh, and so it, it, the end result of that is an overindulgence and a decline in self-control. We can't stop. And and, you know, there may be addictive capacities to our devices, as many have written, you know, so that some of these things become, we are more prone to addictions. And of course, then that leads uh, to self-control. But it was just a growing, growing trend. A lot of people blaming the iPhone now and kind of looking mm. at it as, you know, that uh, uh, I think, you know, the the, the psychologist in San Diego, Twenge, uh, she I think she came right out a while ago and said, you know, you know, she documented when the iPhone came out. And, and the problems uh, developing after that. Mm. So it's it's all those factors. And and now they, they continue, technology continues to <laughs> you go. Like I said, I wrote my book before Twitter came out, you know, and now there's 
TikTok, all these things, you know. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned the word narcissism several times. Are you are you mentioning narcissism as kind of kind of a broad general catch-all term or are you mentioning it as, you know, a pathology or is it both? Right. Well, well we all have some and in my book I have a scale uh, where you go, you know, mild, medium, high. What I'm saying is that overall that scale has gone increasing in the general population. When it gets too high, it even gets to where it's so bad, we get to psychopathy uh, and the person doesn't have any empathy for anyone else and can lie, cheat, and steal because they don't have the guilt and that more important lacking aspect of shame, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, of, of something happening mm-hmm. uh, bad. Yeah. So um, yeah. I, I, I go through the factors, uh, and the premise of some of this was the tremendously historical, important book by Christopher Lash, The Culture of Narcissism, uh, in 76, 77. Uh, and he, boy, he predicted it. He hit it on the head, you know. He saw these trends uh, of the society becoming more narcissistic, you know. Uh, and it's a, he's one of the, the greatest social critics of all time. I uh, ask anybody as far as reading in that book and several others are excellent books too, but that, that became the classic bestseller. Uh, when I was writing my book, I sent a, um, uh, a outline into an editor, you know, and, and it cited Lash and he wrote back and he said, Lash's book is still a hot seller. And this was mm. like in, you know, 2005, 2010. It's still a very popular, you know, as, as a book. And so he hit it. And, and in talking to therapists, he noticed that people were, it was neuroses before that they were neurotic. And they were saying, the patients are changing. They're not as neurotic anymore. They're more narcissistic and are, are growing wealth. And I think, you know, things again had to do with that. Uh, and an interesting background story there is Jimmy Carter was pres- president. Uh, and uh, he gave a talk that was called his... Um, uh, what was the word? Um, uh, it, w- it was a negative talk where he went out one day and he had talked to Lash and he said, something's not wrong. You know, something's wrong. We're buying all these things, but we're not feeling good, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and he went on. And at first it was where we said that. And then we said, well, what the heck is he talking about? No president talks like that, you know? So it was, that was the beginnings of it really, you know, back then. Uh, and uh, uh, shortly after, uh, Carter kind of went down, you know, popular, and he was out, out you know. But uh, it was he was introduced back then, and it was Chris. Unfortunately, he died in the early '90s or so. But his books uh, are still, in terms of people of uh, philosophy, different things, looking at it, and they're so astute. Uh, and he called huh. it back then. So that was the beginning of part. And of course, I had read that in some other books, um, uh, the Image by Borston. That all of a sudden we just. Uh, are concerned with our image and the the, the classic politician would also uh, hold a press conference and say nothing and say, stay tuned, we're going to have another one tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He called them pseudo events and they it's bringing it along to keep so the interesting. audience. Yeah. yeah. And meanwhile, here all of us are living our lives surrounded by, you know, incredible wealth of other people. We're surrounded by growing issues around homelessness, for instance. We have enormous encampments in Seattle and Denver and other cities where quality of life is going down for so many people. 
where we have all these people suffering, obviously, of mental health issues and um, substance use disorders living on the streets. And this whole sense of American, you know, like you've mentioned, rugged individualism, where everyone has to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, you know, this kind of like American ideal of how a self-made man, you know, creates the wealth that he passes down to his family. And I just, I come back to the people who listen to this show, who are mostly nurses, many are clinicians, some might not be uh, working directly with patients, but it's a nursing community, it's a nursing uh, population. And here we are faced with often being with people at the very worst times in their lives, right? Um, death, despair, suffering, pain, etc. Loss, tragedy, grief. So for, for the nurses out there, let's just take the 4 million nurses in the United States. What are your recommendations in terms of when you're feeling these, this sense of despair, this sense of you know, that some of the meaninglessness that you might perceive in the world around you and the the untold levels of suffering. What what do we as individuals do so that we can feel that we have an impact and that we feel we can actually be, let's just call it an agent of change? Yeah. What do you recommend well, as a psychologist? Like what would yeah. you say? You referenced the problem earlier when you talked about, you know, the number of physicians taking their own lives, you know. Yes. I think if you're a nurse, uh, I'm putting myself in the ER nurse or that thing or that with all these traumas coming in that we were talking about earlier, I think it's important, you know, you have to preserve yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that the community of nursing and at your site or others uh, of, of uh, debriefings and talks and, you know, uh, realizing when your colleague goes through that tough thing, or if all of you did, that you need to step back, you need some time, you need some support, be it professional or just personal. Uh, it might even, you know, it, it is, for some, it's time, can be time off, or just, you know, you need to get back to your resources and support. I think uh, it, it, even to larger problems, we we're talking about a community based, supportive aspect resources when that happens because it's unnatural it's traumatic and if it goes on every day uh, then it becomes normative to you uh, this happens in law enforcement also when mm. they go out and every day there's this they go to a terrible accident on the street or what a suicide and they get that call uh to the house uh you know that someone's worried about someone they call it the and they go in and the, and the person's dead and has had one officer tell me, you no, know, as soon as he opens that door and that smell, mm -hmm. you know, what's there. And he told me that smell never leaves him, you know. So, you know, those certain professions have that and they have to take care of themselves and have support groups and have briefings and things, you know, uh, and attachment and things, because uh, they are the humans who are on the line and dealing with. And as these traumas are becoming so much more frequent, it just gets harder and harder. Uh, and as you know, we've talked about this before, nurses have had the, the highest burnout rate, you know, uh, for that reason. And, 
part of it being, you know, I don't know, the docs or some of the places treat them so well either, you know, mm-hmm. as far as status that I, I'm hoping that's getting better. Maybe you can tell me, I don't know. Uh, I would hope so. Uh, it, yeah. It's it's very individual in terms of the people so. involved and also the institutions. And I think uh, right. we need we need leaders within healthcare, you know, right. administrators and executives to take action as well. You yeah. Know, and if I if I was a nurse, yes, I'd be looking for the best place like that, supportive place. Mm-hmm. I'd say I got these skills. I'm in demand. I can work at a lot of places. I'm going to find one that's the right place, the good people, the good soup, where I'm tree, I'm value, and I can get help and this, you know, and we're all in this together. That's what I'd look for. Yeah. And some people find that that's a little difficult to locate and others do find employers where they feel like there's that support for the individual and for the collective. And, you know, I've talked on the show quite a bit about how during the pandemic, there was all this like, you know, banging of pots and pans and all this like support and recognition of nurses and heroes work here and all that sort of thing. And some nurses feel that they're again, back to being basically cannon fodder, you know, being thrown at the front lines of, of healthcare in the United States. So, you know, I think, I think articles written by people like you who want to dig deep into mental health, but deep into the collective, you know, the collective mental health, I think is so important. And in your career, moving forward from here, 2023, are there particular topics that are bubbling up to the surface for you that you feel like you'd like to tackle in a kind of in a public venue? Are there things you're cogitating? Yeah. um, I'm, you know, perhaps it's grandiose, you can tell me, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I came up with uh, a publicist I'm working with on uh, a broader term called depolarization discourse. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was to have talks like you and I are having, uh, only maybe with others, uh, that give an exchange. And even if we differ, uh, our goal is to work it through and have pathways to solutions. Okay. Uh, within that, I've kind of thought of an overarching philosophy I called um, uh, D1C2, democracy first, capitalism second, that a lot of the choices we make at this point in time need to put democracy first mm. and capitalistic and entrepreneur and those needs second, you know. Uh, so that's kind of the overarching. For some specifics that have emerged from some stuff I've written, uh, one that I would, you know, could be a cause and I would love to see advanced is the Forensic Mental Health Hospital. Miami has started it, and a great judge worked on it and got it going there. Uh, it's for the homeless who are mentally ill. A significant percentage of them are. And I do competency evals. I just did two this morning. And uh, they're mentally ill people. They recycle in and out of jail, you know, a lot of times for misdemeanors. Uh, and when I do a comp say, I'm asked about, do they understand everything that's going on, can they go to trial if they need to or what, you know, the law says if they don't understand what they're going on, they're incompetent and you have to restore them to competency, medication, et cetera, whether before they can face their charges. And quite often the charges they've done, uh, you know, like the homeless, they hang out there, you call the police, they remove them, tell them don't come back, they come again, or then they break into your car, you know, or different stuff, you know. Uh, and then finally the police arrest them and they put a, 
the, them in jail. They're homeless. They have mental health symptoms. So this forensic mental hospital uh, has the court there. They can stay longer. They get the family involved. It's just a much more comprehensive mm-hmm. uh, treatment, but it's still, you know, jail in that sense too, you know, to satisfying the need of the public who constantly complain. And I understand it. And it drives me crazy. I can't go out in my own neighborhood. They're always breaking into my car. Right, the exactly. complaints of the businesses that you hear all the time that they're just always in there. I mean, I had several people that I vowed, they walk in the store and grab a bag of chips and walk out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they yeah. go, and then I say, hey, you can't do that. And, they just, and, and then the confrontations, and then they call the police. What else are they going to do? Yeah, you what know? else do you do? What do you, and they come in and, that, and they put the guy in jail, stealing, you know. Yeah. But, uh, why'd you take? Oh, I, was, I was hungry. They, I mean, they just, you know, they, they, and that's very common, you know. And when you say the word forensics, mm-hmm. um, I'm just curious. Forensics isn't like it's not the TV shows you see about, you know, crime solving. Forensics, really, in this, like in in forensic mental health, it has it's related to the law, right, and law enforcement. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that's right. what you're doing when you're doing forensic mental health. You're doing evaluations. You're you're um, working alongside law enforcement and the the judicial system. Correct. Yeah. Not always law enforcement per se. Mostly the judicial system. Mostly judicial. I'm on a panel, and so a judge may need an evaluation. I can give one example in juvenile court, and um, uh, police went, and the mother wasn't there, so they took the child into a you know, a place where they keep kids when they're trying to decide what to do. And so evaluate the kid, evaluate the mother, make recommendations. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see. Is the parent competent? Are they on drug? You know, uh, can the kid safely go back? The court will list the questions. Can this child go back with mom? You know, or, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, does the child have a lot of mental problems or, you know, and Mm -hmm. so they want answer to those specific questions. And I interview and then provide and submit uh, the report to both sides, the person's lawyer and then the court, which is making a decision, trying to make a decision what to do. That's really, it's fascinating. Yeah. And in the adult and, side, it may just be an eval on, um, and there's a, there's insanity evals too, were they insane at the time they committed a crime? I don't like to do those too much. Um, mm-hmm. But um, there's other things about the defense or public defender may ask you to evaluate someone to document the person's situation in life, uh, you know, as, as to how it contributed to their to their crimes. Yeah. Well, Jay, you've been having a fascinating, almost you know, four decade career, and I think your articles on LinkedIn are excellent. I would really love to read your book, The Culture of Excess, and you do some great work out there. And I really appreciate you're addressing these issues like homelessness and suicide, and you know, these aren't fun to talk about. And I really appreciate the energy and and um, you know this thoughtful consideration that you're putting out in the world. I think it's a really important contribution to society. And I'd love to talk to you for many more hours, and we'll have to have you back. But I have four quick lightning round questions I ask all my guests, unrelated to any of the stuff you and I were just talking about. So, are you okay doing that for a couple minutes? I guess it depends what the question. <laughs> well, you're going to find out right now. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. All right. So the first question, and it's interesting because your book is about redefining success, 
But the question is, how do you define success, either personally or professionally? Yeah. Um, uh, Feeling healthy uh, and happy uh, and content, you know, and uh, for me being stimulated uh, mentally and the things I do seem seem to keep me happy and, and active. Uh, and th- and that's since I fulfill uh, each day and week as best I can. Uh, I may be too reliant on myself, though I still, you know, connect well with others in that too. Hmm. Um, so that's the answer to that. That's awesome. And you did not mention making billions. I noticed that did not well, slip by me. I wouldn't mind making some more money. There's times when I get well, very angst-like. Yeah, because uh, everybody wants mental health, but nobody wants to pay for it. I, I understand. Okay. Um, second question. Could you name or just describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead, famous, or just someone none of us would ever have encountered or heard of before. Oh, never have encountered or heard of. Oh, could be No, or it could be someone famous. It's up to you. Yeah. Well, I mentioned the readings uh, of things of Christopher Lash, which, you know, Lash. Uh, yeah, that opened me up and uh, there have been other authors uh, like that too. Uh, somehow, um, you know, um, just a personal story. My sister uh, died from lupus at 42, mm. and her husband, uh, who's now older, uh, he's kind of a hero of mine as to how he coped with it and took care of her and everything. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's things like that uh, that that go along. Uh, and you know, of course, your family and. Uh, uh, my mother, you know, and things that come in kind of your base, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of, uh, that, that develop your moral character, if you will, that those you pillars of your life later. Yeah. 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 So there, right. there's the, to me, there's the intellectual side of a career influencers, mm-hmm. you know, along the way, uh, and some great clinicians I've worked with, you know, colleague I've worked with for 30 years as a best friend and, you know, uh, and then there, uh, there's the personal side too. And sometimes, of course, they overlap. My friend that I just mentioned is, uh, right. we're, we're very close friends too. Right. That's nice. Okay. All right. So the third and penultimate question, you've already mentioned Christopher Lash. So this might give you another opportunity, but I always ask my guests if there's a book or a movie, doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, but a book or movie that has impacted the way they think, the way they live, the way they approach their work, the way they approach their relationships. Is there any other that springs to mind? Uh, no. When it comes to movies, I look for almost uh, a satirical, similar to the tongue-in-cheek capital delusion. And you know, mm-hmm. sometimes on, on these apps, they'll say, what's your favorite movie? And what I put down is the movie Being There with Peter Sellers. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, my and gosh. in that movie, he's a gardener who's probably mentally deficient. And somehow mm-hmm. he gets cast into role of being an economic expert. Mm-hmm. So when he says in a droll voice, the flowers will bloom in the spring, and then the president listens to it in the economy. On the economy, the explodes. <laughs> that is a really good <laughs> one. I, it is yeah. the most satirically funny movie. Uh, and so I kind of like movies like that, you know. I uh, lately, that. I've been into detective stuff. You know, I watched uh, whatever Endeavor. it takes. Yeah. Whatever it takes. We all need escapes as well, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 One of my guilty pleasures, my escapes is watching the the show um, Outlander. Um, so, you know, whatever gets you through the night is the thing that gets you through the night. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question. If you were named king of the world tomorrow, what's one of the first 
actions you would want to take to improve the lives of your subjects, bearing in mind that you have ultimate power and this would just be your first act. What would what would you want to do with your your wand, your scepter? I think I'd want to address the um, the homelessness part uh, and the mental illness. That's what I'd said before. It's one pathway of, of of having all states or things develop forensic mental health mm. hospitals to uh, get the homeless away and try to rectify that problem. Uh, the second after that would be reforming the entire economic structure of of taxes and money so that uh, it's more balanced and uh, uh, people have more chance for keeping more of their money in the lower end rather than, and that's mm. become a political thing, you know, tax the rich. Yes. I, I don't like to hear that, but since we have such a disparity in wealth and those are making so much money, they definitely uh, should be paying more. When I hear corporations don't pay on tax on things, it's very for me and many others, troublesome. So I, those would be the two things that I would. I love that you would be a just and benevolent king for certain, <laughs> Mister Slow, Doctor Slosar. Well, Jay, this has been wonderful. People can go to slosarconsulting.com. That's S L O S A R slosarconsulting.com. I also recommend they find you, Doctor Jay Slosar, on LinkedIn and read your articles. We'll have a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And I think you are a. Um, you are a very important voice out there in the world. I am so glad that our paths have crossed and I really look forward to many more conversations and thank you for doing all this great work in the world. I think you're you're awesome. I'm a big, big fan. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening. If you need personalized holistic career coaching to elevate your career, check out Nurse Keith Coaching at nursekeith.com. Mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. We are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And we are jointly produced by the inimitable Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote, one of my favorites that you've probably heard from me before by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my friend and colleague, Dr. Jay Slosar, saying arrivederci from... Irvine, California. Thank you, Jay. Thank you to everyone for listening. We will catch you on the proverbial flip side. <laughs>